It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. Day to has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, wonderful listener, this is Christina. If you love these podcasts, please make sure to rate each episode, leave a review, and subscribe on the app or platform you listen in on and share with others. It really is a great way to support my work and helps so much. Also, if you want to watch the video of the show, the link to my YouTube channel is below. Welcome to Strange Paradigms. In this weekly show, we'll be taking a look into the news and headlines to pick out curious reports of the strange, weird, and mysterious. Anything from UFO news to science advancements, the paranormal, and stuff labeled fringe science and fringe phenomena. The topics we cover are fascinating, while some unnerving and others disturbing, but definitely show that we live in a strange world 
full of strange mysteries. The idea is for you, the viewers, to be able to offer your thoughts and input on the stories we cover in the live chat. Each news item we go over in the show, I will put all the links in the description box below once this show is over, as well as chapters on the timeline index. Please make sure to share this video with anyone or groups or forums for those who you think will be interested. The growth of this channel has a lot to do with you, my wonderful viewers and listeners. My co-host today is my friend and co-founder of the Debrief Media, Mr. Micah Alexander Hanks. Micah, Hi. how you doing? Well, I'm doing really well. You threw the middle name in there. I did. I'll just start calling you Alex from now on. Well, it's funny. You know, I always thought if I wanted to have a Heineck-esque kind of a name, since I'm a proponent of science applied to unidentified aerial phenomena, I should have like made my pen name long ago, M. Alex Hanks, kind of like J. That would have been so cool. It would have been cool. I mean, I guess it's not too late, but people then they're just going to be like, what's that pretentious idiot doing? Why is he calling himself M. Alex Hanks? But yes, it is true. My middle name is Alexander. Now, how do you know that? Um, I prefer not to answer that. But, you know, for the next book that you write, you, you could you could put M. Alexander Hanks. That'd be cool. Yeah, we'll see. All right. I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is so good to have you on. We have so many articles to cover. Some of them are incredibly fascinating. Some other ones are just kind of like, what the heck is going on? Now, you've seen all of them. And because you are my guest co-host today, I want you to pick the first article that we should cover. Oh, we're not going to go in, uh, in the no, order. You know what? I'm going to let you pick. You're driving the car today. Oh, goodness. Well, uh, if I'm driving the car, then we're definitely not going to go with that Tesla story. Or are we? Let's, let's do it. Let's jump in. Okay. Well, this one's a pretty, pretty weird one. Before we get started, I've seen a lot of Tesla cars recently on the road, now more than ever. And when I came across this article, I was thinking, this is so clickbaity. We have to talk about it. It's so extreme. Tell us but, what we're looking at here. <laughs> <laughs> what are we looking at? Well, we see a Tesla and then we see a little dummy right in front of it. Oh, well, what's that about? Turns out there was an article written and it's kind of going viral in the sense that there is one campaign being run stating that the newer models of Tesla have a safe self-driving mode but it doesn't actually work. If you put a dummy right in front of it, it's going to run over the child. Scary stuff. Scary? Yeah. I think so. Mm -hmm. Well, here we're looking at a, the Dawn Project launched a PSA campaign showing a Tesla in full self-driving mode, FSD, repeatedly mowing down a child-sized mannequin. And what does he want to do? He wants to ban Tesla, stating that our children are at risk because Teslas aren't safe. What do you think about that, Micah? Well, you know, what it all really comes down to for me is that as we're looking at more and more autonomous machines, I mean, we don't have truly, fully uh, self-controlled machines just yet. They work almost perfectly given the way that they're designed, given their algorithms. And really, when it comes to self-driving cars, I mean, people have been saying for years that although it may have started right now, Elon Musk himself has even said, you know, my intention was never to lead the market. It was to try and produce a product that would encourage other people 
as a natural kind of byproduct of competition in the market to get more people involved in self-driving vehicles. And here's the thing. Uh, in the years ahead, we're probably going to see more of them and probably better. Um, and I think we should remind everybody that, yes, a company like Tesla should always be held to very high standards. And what these videos seem to indicate is that, you know, the uh, driving, the self-driving features maybe don't function as well as we thought. They probably do under most circumstances, but obviously a small individual, a child, you know, we could think of, you know, pets and other uh, small uh, entities that might also qualify. Uh, it's going to have some difficulty detecting those as some of these images appear to show. And some people are, of course, raising concerns about. But again, what my hope is, is that in the future, we are going to have better, actually autonomous, self-driving vehicles that are safer. And that as we're already nearing right now, that are actually better drivers than human drivers. But again, to me, the, the broader conversation, Christina, it really has to do with just auto artificial intelligence in general. If we make a machine that can operate and that has better reaction time and also ability to discern and, and perceive things in the environment, even than a human does, um, what does that mean for humans? Uh, we have to start yeah. thinking about it may begin with cars, but what next? You know, what kinds of machines are going to be outperforming humans on down the road? And is that a good or a bad thing? Maybe both. Well, we are seeing a lot of advancements when it comes to robots and also making them look more human. We are now seeing scientists and researchers creating a type of synthetic skin that can sweat, that can heal itself when it's cut, that can kind of stretch on the joints of a robot finger. Because what they want to go ahead and do is that if you're interacting with a robot, you're not going to have that same sense of connection as you would with the robot that looks very human very much like in the movie blade runner right great great film and great soundtrack as well but when we're looking at this and this type of ai type of a uh, car that can drive on its own of course we're going to see flaws and it's still in a sense in the making while tesla was first created in 2003 this this automated type of driving didn't start until I think believe 2014 is kind of when it started and they started selling it about 2018 2019 and even then it's still not that popular yet but it is the future unfortunately because who likes driving most people are going to say eh. some are going to say I love driving and you're you're going to be that rare one percent but for the majority of people they want to be the passenger not the driver yeah and I think that's probably my experience, you know, different countries I travel to, different cities I'm in, you know, it may be in one instance, uh, I get very used to Uber, right, and public transportation. Right. And uh, when I come back to, you know, dear old Appalachia, and I'm in my car, and I'm driving myself everywhere, you know, it's a bit of a shift. Uh, now, personally, I do like driving an automobile. Uh, but there are times where I would rather somebody else drive, that's for sure. Uh, you know, I guess it's it's kind of a mixed bag. And really right now, the current state of self-driving vehicles seems to be as well as evidenced by this story. And we're also aware that parts of Asia, such as South Korea, are a little bit more advanced on these self-driving cars. I can and they're also create they've also created highways that are automated. You just get on the highway and it drives for you until you have to leave into your exit. But when we are looking at this situation, this type of smear campaign. I will place once again all the links below. I definitely recommend that you read the uh, Twitter thread. It's hilarious on some people that are pro banning Tesla and those that are stating 
you're out of your mind. This campaign is dumb. And to the point where there have been recent videos on YouTube of people putting their Teslas to the test, seeing if if it would actually run over a child. And all, some, well, some not real say children, right? not but, real um, children. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't want to do that. <laughs> don't want to do be, that. Yeah. No, no, no. They're they're using mannequins. One uh, video used a type of balloon on a string and it was like it was very cool. But yeah. some of some of these Tesla tests, they do run over these dummy mannequins, while others, they actually deliberately go at a slower pace and they avoid the child taking a side either right or left. So what's the answer for that? Maybe it's a different model. Maybe it, I don't know, needed to be charged for some reason. I'm not too familiar with Teslas. Would I get one if if they have solar panels? That'd be awesome versus like having to charge it, you know, like in your house oh. or like one of those little charging pods. Yeah, right. Solar powered uh, electric self-driving vehicles. Now that, my friend, that is the way of the future. I would be down for that one. Solar panel cars. Th that's genius we, we should patent that micah well we, we could but the problem is, is then we're gonna have to get you know our technology firm uh to work on this you know maybe bring the r d people in as well but we could do it we could definitely do it yeah i'm, I'm ready and put it on all the rvs as well forget but gas if, if we're gonna go, go to the, if we're gonna go to the trouble to build that kind of a vehicle then what i would say is we might as well just go ahead and start building uaps fly instead of drive right self-flying uh craft and then if we're going to go to UAPs, might as well just get a time machine. Yeah, we could use one of those, actually. Well, I mean, you know, another one, right? Right, <laughs> so. we have to. But you brought up UAPs. We should talk about that. That's our next article. Well, you know, that's the thing. There's this big story. It's funny because uh, the, the story we're about to cover involves a famous photograph that was only seen really by most of us for the first time today. So how is it already famous? Now that's kind of the conundrum and no, I'm not talking about time travel, uh, but what we're talking about is a photograph that uh, some ministry of defense officials in the UK had talked about already for years. Here we're now seeing that image. Uh, it appears to show a large sort of diamond shaped object and then another aircraft uh, off in the distance. Uh, some remember Nick Pope, who worked for the Ministry of Defense, of Defense back uh, through the, 18, uh, the 1980s, I guess, and 1990s, maybe up into the early 2000s as well. He fam famously, of course, said he worked at the UFO desk. Now, that's not what it was called. Right. And there have been a lot of people who have raised you know, that point. But he did, while he was in his position in government, actually investigate uh, UAP. I think Secretariat 2A uh, was the name of the division, and it has a totally different division now. Uh, and the important point is, is that even though the Ministry of Defense has released its own documents saying things like, well, you know, Mr. Pope never worked at anything called the UAP desk, that office does look at UFOs. And while he worked there, he said there was this incredible photo that we uh, had and that it was just maybe the best UFO photo I had ever seen while I was working for the MOD. Um, but we didn't expect we'd probably ever see it. In fact, I think Pope had even tweeted earlier this year. Uh, or maybe late last year, something about, you know, is that photo going to come out next year? I don't know. He seemed to be kind of skeptical that it would ever see the light of day. But apparently, here it is. And the really interesting thing to me about this photo is uh, some of the commentary. You know, you sent me this article, uh, Christina, that, uh, again, for, you know, someone I would consider a friend of our programs. I've had him on in the past, and he's definitely a voice I trust, but he is on the skeptical side of the fence, Dr. David Clark, who is... 
uh, a good skeptic to me in the sense that he's a guy who thinks, first of all, things like, well, there are UAP, but he's doubtful that they are everything that people make them out to be, you know, little green men piloting, you know, craft from space. But uh, he's very much of the mind that there are genuine UAP. Uh, but as a folklorist, as a journalist, and as a professor of both of those, he looks at things very analytically and scholarly. So seeing Dr. Clark authoring this piece that you sent along from mailplus.co.uk today by Dr. Clark gives us some great information. And I'll just quote briefly a little here. On August 4th, 1992, young men were working as chefs in a hotel in Pitlochry, a beautiful Highland Perthshire town just outside of Cairgorms National Park in Scotland. It was a little after 9 p.m. After a long day in a hot kitchen, they drove about 13 miles north along the A9 to Calvin, a spot on the edge of the Cairngorms, for a walk in the hills. And they hadn't gone far when they saw a huge, solid, diamond-shaped object. They estimated it was about 100 feet long, and they said it was hovering silently in the sky above them. So rather than standing there and looking at this perplexed, they actually were quite scared by it, and they hid in some bushes. They said a few minutes later they heard a jet coming in from the north. Back in 1990, the uh, Royal Air Force uh, Lucars, I believe, in Fife had two squadrons of tornado fighters on the 24-hour standby. These were used as Russian interceptors, by the way. And so as Dr. Clark explains, the jet came back, circled the thing before heading off on its original course, as if the pilot had seen the object too and had come back for a closer look. So anyhow, the men get their camera out, and they fired off six frames, and they get this photograph – and then they took that photo initially to the Daily Record, one of Scotland's leading newspapers. The story wasn't ever printed, which is interesting in itself. The paper instead saw these images and maybe had actually thought, is this some kind of a special aircraft? Is this one of ours? Is this something else? They may have thought it was of national security importance. And so they actually sent that image rather than publishing it onto the Ministry right. of Defense. And then the photograph just vanished. So that's kind of where it was left. But of course, the gentleman featured in the photo that you've pulled up right there uh, actually has that original copy and it has now surfaced according to what Dr. Clark writes. Um, and when in the back channel chats today, when I was seeing people share the photo and talking about it, I was kind of chuckling because I'm like, yeah, this is, this is funny. People are talking about that. I initially thought it was a recreation. There have been recreations of this photograph online available for years. Mm -hmm. Brett Hingley, uh, you know, former aerospace and defense writer for the war zone, now an editor for space.com. He and I've joked about those recreations of that photo, but seeing the authentic uh, photo, the real McCoy, as it were, it's strikingly similar to the recreations and it's obviously just a kite, right? Right. Right. Well, I mean, that's what Mick said. You know, Mick West today was on Twitter. Uh, and, you know, again, I appreciate that necessary balance that Mick West provides. But he says, could it just be a just a, a regular old kite? And again, this is the difference between to me and in fairness to Mick, who, you know, I'd love to talk to sometime about this. I imagine we could sit down, have a great cup of joe and have some good conversation. But, uh, you know, we lead with the presumption that everything in a photograph that might appear anomalous must have not only a simpler explanation, but a mundane explanation. So it's always a kite or it's a bird or it's lens flare. Whereas Dr. Clark, you know, he's actually giving us a lot of background. Again, a good UK skeptic who's spent a lot of time digging through the Ministry of Defense UFO files. But bottom line, a lot of us weren't aware that this photo was coming out or expect really, in fact, for it ever to come out. And here it is. And it's pretty similar to the recreations and it's well, I mean, according to some, everything that we had hoped it would be. So now, what do you think about this, Christina? I mean, real, fake, something else? Well, Dave Clark had mentioned that it wasn't supposed to come out until 2076. 
54 years later after this was taken and for, for due to privacy concerns. So I think that piece of information could lead to other cases or other pictures or other stories that we've encountered. For example, here in the United States, where maybe in 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we might get more information about Roswell when it's available, when the government says, okay, now people can know about it. So I find that rather interesting that this picture came out almost prematurely. It shouldn't have come out until 2076. So when I look at this picture, I personally don't like looking at photos of ufos right because we've have we've seen many renditions we've seen a lot of photoshop we've seen a lot of hoaxes as well and while this particular photo was studied and i can give you the exact name of who studied it um in just a moment oh by andrew robinson a senior lecturer in photography he had looked into it and he's convinced that it is genuine and if it is a hoax and a highly elaborate one involving ex expensive sophisticated equipment and flying models not at the disposal of just two hotel chefs now if we were able to get a video i think it might have been a little bit different but looking at this picture you're able to see a beautiful structure compared to the very typical blurry images blobs orbs and we're even able to see an airplane to give the craft a little bit of reference a reference point so i think overall it's a very interesting photo i definitely would like more people to talk about it we can get other people's opinions on it as you had stated mick west said it's a kite hopefully yep. in time we'll be able to get that real answer i'll just put this out there again and, and i always want to be fair to everybody i i appreciate what mick does i just often disagree with him and i also feel that uh you know like a lot of the more hardline ufo believers i do think that mick uh, does a couple of things. He'll cherry pick certain things so that they seem to fit his argument better when in fact there are a lot of criteria I think that should be met in terms of debunking UFO uh, photos or cases or witness you know, uh, accounts or the videos, the Navy videos, for instance. But I don't feel all those criteria are met in his case. But I, like Mick, also will try to debunk first as opposed to lead with the presumption that therefore aliens, right? I mean, it's important to be able to rule out certain things so that we don't waste a bunch of time looking at something that may end up being nonsense. Uh, I don't like the, the tendency that many people have, not just Mick, by the way, to lead with the presumption that there's always not only a simpler explanation, but a very mundane one, therefore always a kite. In recent days, there's been a lot of buzz about whether the children uh, during the Rua uh, incident there in Africa, the Ariel School incident, as depicted in this recent film by Randall Nichols Nickerson, uh, whether that might have been a bus, you know, or a, a uh, van full of puppets and the puppets were being un up, uh, unloaded. Uh, and again, in fairness, Mick didn't say that they were puppets. He didn't say this photograph was a kite. What he tends to say is, is that not a more plausible explanation than the idea of alien visitation, to which I would simply say this. In terms of how we all view our census reality, yes, that is a seemingly more plausible explanation. I will absolutely uh, agree on that point. However, just because it's more plausible, given one's frame of reference to reality, that doesn't make it 
the actual explanation. Uh, it, it only is if you believe it is. And that's the thing. We should leave belief out of the equation. And we should simply say, interesting photograph here, what the witnesses told us. For some reason, uh, the Daily Mail chose not to publish it. The Ministry of Defense has kept it under wraps. They said privacy issues. Again, when I look at this photo and in the United States, uh, you know, again, the debrief team and I, we're often working on FOIAs. And we know that for reasons of privacy, especially if it's the Federal Bureau of, F, uh, of uh, Investigation and a few other agencies, if there are people's names, their next of kin, private information or other things that a document might uh, reveal, those things, if a document's released, is going to be redacted. And sometimes they'll be withheld entirely for a period of time uh, right. so that th those privacy issues are no longer a problem once the documents are released. But I look at that photo and I'm kind of wondering to myself, what privacy concerns could they have had of a couple of trees, a white sky in the background, a big diamond in an aircraft? I mean, that, I don't see any really sensitive information from an individual in this photograph. Now, that doesn't mean that there wasn't some and that there weren't legitimate concerns related to privacy in this case. I just don't see it from my peripheral view of that photograph, okay? Um, so who knows, but it's been released and we've now seen the photo and it is essentially almost exactly how those who had already seen it in their past work with the mod said it looked. And I would like to mention how David Clark actually ended the article, but first arranged lunatic, thank you so much for the super sticker. He went ahead and stated, so what is it? Sadly, I do not think that mysterious aircraft arrived from another galaxy. I believe it was a man-made somewhere in a secret hangar. And whatever it was remains on the secret list and highly sensitive. The witnesses had simply been in that one to a million chance of being in that particular place at that particular time and needed to be shut up. Remember, this was 1990. The Cold War was still a year away from thawing. The Gulf War started literally days earlier. The world was, as many would argue it still is today, divided among them and us battle lines. And the way he ended it, ended it fully, and I found this fascinating. The the photograph, in my opinion, the best image showing an unidentified flying object ever taken. But as Dr. J. J. Allen Hynek had stated, unidentified to whom? And right. what a beautiful way to also end the article, but also my new favorite quote. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. My new yeah, favorite well, and, uh, and if you ever talk to Dr. Clark, you should have him on one of your shows sometime because, you know, he's a very eloquent speaker. Uh, he is a true gentleman. And again, uh, somebody on the, the far more skeptical side of the fence who really, to me, 
exercises very good skepticism. And I would have to say in this instance, his conclusion, I'm probably right there. I mean, when I look at that, and this is entirely speculation, Christina, and I know we've got other stories to get to, but I'll just add this. Uh, you know, you can never rule out experimental aircraft of our own design, whether that be the United States or the United Kingdom. Uh, I look at that and I wonder if there's a possibility that we could be, could be looking at some kind of, an, uh, of a balloon, some kind of a um, possible radar reflector kind of technology. The fact that there appeared to be a jet, a military jet in the frame, rather than being uh, evidence that they were exploring this UFO and what it was and why it was you know, there, that seems to indicate to me that, I mean, if there's an aircraft that comes flying in and tries to get a closer look and the thing stays there and doesn't try to evade that aircraft... Uh, that probably means the plane was supposed to be there. I mean, again, in my judgment. So what Dr. Clark puts forward is a very necessary perspective and one that's very necessary in the broader history of UFOs. There are those unidentified aircraft that maybe are truly perplexing or phenomenal, we might actually say, if they aren't all aircraft. And then there are those unidentified aircraft that very clearly are something from here on Earth that some of which still remain unidentified. So again, to his point and to that quote that you like so much, unidentified to who? <laughs> that seems to be the question. And I think that when a lot of people look at photographs or talk about UFO craft, we and like you had said, Micah, we usually think that it's extraterrestrial in origin, that it's not from this earth. But we we really, truly need to consider that our military, our government across the world is capable of potentially creating craft very similar to this. And it's still under wraps. Is that just as secretive, these types of black projects? Are they just as secretive as people finding out that there are extraterrestrials potentially visiting Earth? Are they just as important. So I think that we always need to consider that, that we are, that we are possibly able to create this type of technology. Yeah, well, and I'll also throw this in there. I remember back uh, in advance of the 2008 uh, election, you know, they had a number of the Democratic candidates on stage during a debate, and I think it was Governor Bill Richardson of New Mexico, and they were asking him questions about Roswell. And when they came along to a, a young senator uh, from Illinois, uh, Barack Obama, who was running for president that year, uh, he kind of joked in this debate and said something along the lines of, you know, I don't know if there's life out there, but I know that there's intelligent life here on Earth. Now, I would actually step back and say that's fairly debatable whether we're really that intelligent. I guess that's a fairly you know, relative uh, perspective that we might have as earthlings. But nonetheless, to his point, uh, with that in mind and knowing that we have life uh, and we'll say technologically capable life here that can build extraordinary things from self-driving cars to very unusual looking aircraft, as a good UFO researcher, the first thing you should always do is say, Let's work our way up from the bottom. Instead of leaping to extraterrestrial, let's start with, right. could this be from here? Could this be one of ours? What evidence either seems to confirm or to you know detract from that argument? And, and that's a better way to go. Uh, and I think that a good UFO researcher will always try to rule out more mundane things without leaping to extremely mundane things that actually are so mundane that they almost seem improbable, even if they appear to be more plausible than the idea of extraterrestrial visitation. You've been in the field for quite a few decades, and I've asked you this question before on Shifting the Paradigm, but for those that haven't seen that interview, I'm going to go ahead and ask you again. And that is, how would someone be able to decipher if it was us or them? In, in the sense of technology, like how, how, what, what would be some red flags? 
Well, you know, what would have been interesting is if that photograph had been seen for years and um, and people in the Ministry of Defense at the time that they had seen that, you know, many, many years ago, if they hadn't known what it was. And then today when it was released, we were all like, oh, that's undeniably an F4 Phantom. And actually, I've seen a lot of people talking about the idea that it could be that. Brett Tingley, who I mentioned earlier, and I have speculated about what the aircraft in the photo before it was released based on the descriptions might have been. You know, there are a lot of different contenders. Looking at the image, it doesn't look like an exact match for known aircraft of any kind that I know of. And again, to Dr. Clark's point, he seems to agree that it's probably something we built, but that's probably not one that we know. That's probably not an aircraft that's ever been publicly acknowledged. And so the problem is in terms of, well, how do we draw the line and, and differentiate between us and them? Them presuming that there is another kind of intelligence that's visiting Earth and that they actually have it in their possession aircraft that seem very exotic in appearance and, and in their capabilities. We just don't know. Uh, and the reason why is because between the world of black programs where so much is kept off the books and then the speculations about there being more exotic aircraft visiting Earth, which we have so little information about apart from the good and reliable data that some civilian investigators have collected and that their interpretation led them, their bias kind of came down on extraterrestrial. Again, we really have no way of knowing the difference. Again, the only thing I think you can do is you can, like I mentioned, try to start from the bottom up. And always rule out the things that are clearly impossible or at very least are easier to remove as possibilities and deal with those factions and those factors that are more likely, uh, which is I know it's fairly ambiguous. But again, what about the entire UAP topic isn't right? You know, that's kind of the problem exactly. as UFO researchers. Micah, this is why I talk to you. This this is why we're friends. <laughs> Well, there are a lot of reasons, but, you know, that happens to be one of them. <laughs> it's because you know what you're talking about. Let's shift gears a little bit to something a little bit more comical. And I... can you guess which one I'm going to cover? I don't know, but I think I'm craving a charcuterie board with three cheeses, maybe string cheeses for that matter. Oh, you know, that sounds really good. Well, you do know that in uh, Toronto there, there's an auction out for this one string cheese would you buy it or what, what what would you trade to get this string cheese that's on a nice big bulletin board in toronto well i think in my case i'd probably trade an energy drink for the owner of that string cheese to just keep it all right well, until it gets like moldy and expires or grody. The owner could keep it or and eat it. They could feed it to a pet or to a child as long as it's not, you know, beyond its uh, expiration date. Uh, there are any number of things they could do, but I'm not really desirous of string cheese at the moment. No, me neither. I'm I'm actually not really fond of cheese, um, but I I love macaroni and cheese and grilled cheese sandwiches. Like, wow, amazing! But cheese by itself, just like chowing down on cheese, no, it's it's not for me. I also break out a lot when I have too much dairy. So, also. You do mm -hmm. as well? Oh, man, yeah, it's it's the sure. worst. Mm -hmm. And so I got to wear like, never mind. So this is a really interesting story. And Angel Domingo, very Latin name. He bought this advertising space and he found, he said he found the string cheese in the refrigerator of his new home when he moved to Toronto. Well, that sounds fantastic. So he told Global News he regularly trades items on resell websites, and 
he decided he would try to do the same with this piece of cheese. He's traded vehicles, car parts, or even furniture on resale websites. And he had he said the market is filled with all kinds of strange things. And he ended up stating, this is probably the strangest thing that I've had ever offered up. Someone told me that I couldn't get anything for it. And maybe nobody would want it. But I guess some people really want it. Excuse me. So he puts his phone number on this bulletin board. It was up for a about a week, to my knowledge. And if you want to call this number, go ahead and call it. I dare you. Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure that this board might still be up. But it, it's it been up since the 1st of August. So it's been two weeks. Almost two weeks now. And he had told the news that he's gotten some really just obscure things to trade for. He said that. When he did his first interview, the weirdest thing that he got for a trade were two Persian cats. And then he's gotten thousands, literally thousands of other offers looking at, um, what's his name? Shaq O'Neal rookie cards and even a pregnant girlfriend. Wow. I mean, obviously there's no value there. But he stated that He's he's denied everyone's offer. He hasn't found the one that he wants yet. But it gets even weirder, Micah. Why does the story get even weirder? Oh, I don't know. You tell me. I'm I'm just on the edge of my seat, Christina. So, I mean, first of all, I think it's crazy to put your phone number out to the public. Like, if if I was a regular person, which I think <laughs> I am, I would I would never. I you do not want my phone to ring. Right. That was that was your tell. Right? <laughs> if I it? were a regular person, I knew you were an alien. This this has just been confirmed. Well, I want to tell you a quick story that's totally related to that. The first interview I ever did when I first started podcasting, um, it was probably like my worst experience. It was so funny because I was with a group of other people and someone wrote in the live chat, out of everyone on this panel, who do you think's an alien? And everyone looks at me. And they said, well, your eyes are really big. You must be an alien or like a gray. And I said, thank you for making me feel accepted on my very first podcast. Really appreciate it. Uh -huh. So now I now everyone thinks that I have that I'm part hybrid because I have big eyes, but it's the makeup. But anyways, back to the story. What's really weird about this is that he said in this advertising and those on this bulletin board, he had stated, look, I know what I got. Do not try to lowball me here. I know what I have. It's not expired. It's delicious. And if my wife founds out how much I put into this, she's going to kill me. Turns out just a few days ago, after this was out for almost two weeks, it was all a stunt. Yes, it was an advertising stunt. And you know what? I was a little bit heartbroken. I'm not going to lie. I, I fell for it just like the majority of people did. And pretty much the the creative director for this company, Spencer Ryan, told the message that they were a little bit surprised by how much the media fell for it. We he stated, we tried to make the billboard as low-fi as possible to keep them off the track. It's just a pretty wild thing for a brand to do to do this type of stunt and even putting the phone number out there. Well, that phone number was just a character of Angel Domingo, who was a voice actor. 
and just accepting all of these thousands of phone calls and what people wanted to trade in for this for this string cheese and even the commercials is more weird <laughs> wow well you know again advertising in the 21st century you know and on the one hand it's funny because when when you first um sent along the research document for this week's stories and by the way uh from the behind you know from behind the scenes Christina does a fantastic job with her show prep. I mean, I got like a full dossier of everything she wanted to cover. And so I'm going over all the stories and everything and all the points. And I saw this and I kind of thought, you know, is this, is there some sort of a joke that I'm not in on here? Uh, and, and in your notes, you'd even mentioned, you know, and I was even fooled by it. I'm like, and I still don't get the joke or why she <laughs> talk about this. No, the thing is, is that this went on for days and that like many people with bated breath, you were sitting there waiting on the edge of your seat just like I have been during this story. But that's the whole thing. It's this like engineered, absurd story that people just can't get enough of and they can't stop looking. It's like won't right. turn away, but can't. And and that's the effectiveness of this sort of and you want to make the call. You want to call and know the story of why. <laughs> yeah. And, and see, that's incredibly brilliant on the one hand. But then again, it also, I guess, kind of draws the line between traditional advertising right and uh and then and i guess disclosures about advertising okay. versus viral marketing but again it really i mean in recent years we've seen actually going back a couple of decades at this point we've seen plenty of similar viral marketing stunts where a stunt generates a tremendous amount of interest in something goes viral and then it's revealed that there is another purpose which usually has to do with a product or something and you know maybe in the direction of the next story we might do, which will have to do with the discovery of a new creature. I just want to bring in another kind of tangent on this touch uh, story, unless you had anything you wanted to add about the infamous, string, we'll call this forever. The instruments, <laughs> infamous string cheese in incident. But um, I believe the guy's name is coyote Peterson. And he recently posted online. You may have seen this, right? That he yeah, we covered it. Not we covered it, but we, uh, it was covered on strange paradigms. But continue please for those that don't know the story. I figured that you had, and of course, as my homework for this program, naturally, having not been on this show with you yet, I went back and watched a few episodes, and the most recent one I watched was the one where my good pal Chris Plain was on the show. So, you know, I, I, I take my cues from the very best, all right? If I learn there the road, go. I'm going to blame uh, Mr. Plain here. So anyway, um, but I didn't see your coverage of the Coyote Peterson thing, so your viewers may already know a bit about that. I'll very, very briefly kind of outline it for anyone who hasn't followed that. Um, there were images that were posted on social media of Mr. Peterson unearthing from mud somewhere in this sort of forested area that kind of resembled the Pacific Northwest, what looked like a large gorilla skull. And he was saying, just found this, and we're going to be talking about this on like a live stream, you know, a few nights later and do a big reveal. Uh, and um, almost immediately people... Internet sleuths were looking at it and saying this is actually a known model of a gorilla skull that can be purchased. And this is obviously a hoax. <clears throat> but a lot of us, uh, and actually, as you know, I actually uh, produce a supplemental podcast to my main show with a couple of co-hosts where we do look scientifically, seriously, always with a touch of skepticism at the idea of what are called relic hominoids by those who are serious scientific proponents of the existence of a, of a creature like Sasquatch. We talked about it on our show, too. The first question that I guess a lot of us had was, you know, well, this guy seems pretty reputable, and all of a sudden he's coming out with a claim like this. So why is he doing that? I mean, that was more suspicious than the alleged discovery itself. Why would this individual come out of all people making that kind of a claim? Right. 
And then it's revealed that it was actually in the furtherance of a sort of educational uh, endeavor. He comes out, he immediately says, once they do the big reveal, that, okay, that it's, it wasn't real, obviously. Uh, but if it had been, right, and they kind of made an educational thing out of it. Uh, a lot of people, I think, were offended. A lot of the crypto enthusiasts, right, cryptozoology, not cryptocurrency, <laughs> They were kind of they were kind of upset about that. Meanwhile, I think, and again in defense of Mr. Peterson, I would say, you know, I don't I don't think a lot of people who fake Bigfoot videos or footage or photos these days do so necessarily with malice as the underlying intent. Sadly, to the contrary, I think that they take for granted that everybody will know immediately that any claim of the discovery of anything like a Sasquatch or related to it is obviously a joke because we know Bigfoot doesn't exist, right, Pee-wee? And so that's the whole thing is, I mean, do we really know that this creature doesn't exist? And that kind of, again, to me, comes down to your bias. Most people would just lead with the presumption a creature like Sasquatch, that's nonsense. It couldn't exist. But you talk to a paleoanthropologist and they'll say, well, we could look at Paranthropus. We could look at the giant megafaunal Pleistocene ape Gigantopithecus blackie. We could look at any number of other varieties of extinct species known in the fossil record that are very good matches for what people claim they see today when they describe this creature known collectively as Sasquatch or Bigfoot. So is that really so impossible? And Christina, you know, I like to look at things philosophically, right? I do. And as a philosopher and in terms of uh, epistemology and in terms of likelihoods, again, I like to play these kind of thought experiments. Think for a moment about how many people, even in government, you know, lawmakers in Washington, serious research scientists, ever since 2017 and this whole kind of widening of the UAP debate, think how many people, cautious though they are, who are like, hey, you know what? It's very possible that Earth's being visited by extraterrestrials. Okay, well, here's a question. You know, how much evidence do we really have that supports that? Well, we see these things in the sky. Okay, you're right, we do. But how much actual direct evidence supports ET visitation? We just don't know what UAP are. But so many people are so willing to jump on board that bandwagon. And yet you tell them that there's an undiscovered species of ape on Earth and they will laugh you out of the room. And I like to remind people, new species are discovered almost every day. That's case right. In, case in point, this story that we covered over at the debrief in recent days, uh, which really kind of helps to illustrate this. Now, it's not a giant, presumably megafaunal bipedal ape living in North America, that would be indeed an extraordinary discovery. I have good days and bad days of the week where, you know, some days I'm like, gosh, all these witness descriptions must account for something. And then other days I'm kind of like, ah, maybe it is just a legend. I remain a Sasquatch hopeful, but a still hopeful skeptic at the end of the day. But now the creature that we see right here, very different kind of a creature. This is not a Sasquatch, obviously, or any part of a Sasquatch. No, it looks kind of, it makes my skin crawl a little bit. Right. And it is a slightly scary looking species, but it's nothing that's actually dangerous. This is of the genera Bathonomus. I think that the first variety of uh, Bathonomus giganteus was first discovered back in the uh, middle to late 1900s. And in fact, this discovery that was uh, made by Ming Shi Huang and his team, uh, he the lead author, but there were also Australian researchers and uh, researchers uh, uh, from other uh, international locations who were involved in this research effort. Uh, this variety that was actually found in the Gulf of Mexico was initially thought to have been uh, the known variety or a known variety of Bathonomus. As it turns out, there are some distinctive differences. And if you, if you look at the tail on that creature, right down near the tail, 
it's kind of outer shell. This is an isopod, by the way. So basically, this creature is related to lobster and other kinds. In fact, actually, it's related to some land-dwelling creatures. If you've ever turned over a rock in your garden, you know the little roly-polies that you see sometimes, right? Well, this is actually a cousin of those. And it's fascinating to me that, and, and you can tell that just from looking at it, but how fascinating that we've got varieties that live in the water and varieties that can live on land. I mean, that, that's just remarkable. And they actually look very similar to one another. Anyhow, um, this is actually an entirely different species. And if you look at the area of the tail in this photograph, that's going to be up toward the top. It's uh, admittedly a little difficult to tell which uh, end is the, the front and the back, but the top is the tail. And there are some differences in terms of the uh, structure of uh, the segmentation of, I guess, what we would effectively call the shell or the exoskeleton of this uh, isopod, uh, if that's the proper term. And again, I'm no biologist, but I'm an enthusiast and I enjoy this stuff. And due to the minor differences in that region of this creature, uh, they were able to identify this as a separate species, which has now been dubbed Bathonomus yucatanensis, uh, named after the Yucatan nearby to the Gulf of Mexico. Um, now, some would say, yeah, but that was out there in the ocean. And even though it is giant, at least as far as isopods go, this one is actually a very large specimen. And hence in our reporting at the debrief, I referred to it as such a giant specimen from the Gulf of Mexico. And I think it's, what, 2,000 times larger than its, than its counterpart, I believe? Well, I mean, it's still pretty large uh, in comparison to uh, especially the, the land varieties I was talking about. Uh, compared alongside, the, uh, for instance, uh, um, the um, Bathonomus giganteus, uh, first discovered more than a century ago. I mean, it's going to look almost identical, and they actually thought that that's what we were looking at here. But again, as far as this variety of animals, as far as isopods go, it's a pretty large new discovery. And one of the reasons it was able to remain hidden for so long is because it actually uh, primarily lives on the very bottom of the ocean. It lives in the very deepest portions of its habitat, which naturally makes it very difficult. People don't go there very often. We sometimes send undersea probes down to that level. Right. And so you're not going to come across these very often. But again, my point is there are a lot of people out there in the sciences who tend to kind of think in terms of, well, we've really made all the big discoveries, all the major discoveries have been made, all the major animal species have been logged. There's nothing new to be found out there. I would beg to differ. And again, it sounds on the more extraordinary side of things to bring up in this conversation, things like Sasquatch, right? Or Loch Ness. Now I have my you know, sincere doubts about it, there being any kind of a biological reality to the claims of Loch Ness. But when it comes to something like Sasquatch, again, I, I point people to the paleoanthropological record. I say, look at ancient human history, look at Paranthropus, look at Gigantopithecus. We could even look at other t varieties too. Um, and the constant in recent years, discovery of new fossil hominins, hominin basically being, you know, near human ancestors, uh, or cousins to humans as it exists today. And there are plenty of extant apes like, you know, mountain gorillas. They're existing today. They're known today, but they were only discovered in the last century. Well, the second to last century right. as well. And before that, they were in the realm of myth. These mountain giants, these humanoids that live down there in the mountains. People didn't believe that until they actually brought a specimen back to England, I think in maybe the 1830s or 40s. And all of a sudden we recognize, wow, all those stories, all that folklore about these monstrous creatures was actually true. I would contend, especially if we have an intelligent species on our hands, there could be others. And it's the height of arrogance to rule out those possibilities while 
again, looking at something like UFOs and saying, oh my gosh, but I totally buy it. Aliens probably, right? Exactly. And I love how you made that connection with the species that was found with things that are still classified as cryptids. I think while I found this creature grody because I have my only phobia are cockroaches and drowning. So yeah. that so two two in one. It's super deep in the ocean and it looks like a cockroach. So no. But I think the only cute thing about it is that its nickname is Vanilla Vader. I like that name. I didn't even see that. Is that in the paper? Yeah. Well, it's in it's in one of the articles, not in the debrief one, but another one. I was like, that's kind of cute. Like that should be like an ice cream flavor. But now that sounds really gross because I don't want bugs in my ice cream. Thank you. Vanilla Vader. Yeah, Vanilla Vader. Oh, that that's was really actually, cute. That's a that is a very cool nickname too. Okay, quick question. Brief notes and aside. Uh, have you watched Obi One yet? On uh, no, Disney? I haven't. You I haven't. haven't. No. no, you know it's funny because I mean I always ask you about different sci-fi references and things, and you always pick up on Doctor Who. But often when I ask you about sci-fi references, you either don't get them or you haven't watched those films. Uh, but I was very surprised to hear you drop Blade Runner because that may be my favorite film of all time. Oh, it's so it's so good, and the whole soundtrack by Vangelis. I mean, you, it, mm -hmm. it can't get better. I I made a um, inspirational track. It's on my channel. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For Blade Runner, and I'm, it's one of my favorite films. Mm -hmm. oh, one yeah. of my favorites. I love Definitely. it. And I'll also quick call out uh, for folks out there who follow Christina on YouTube. Don't forget about those tracks that she does these excellent uh you know help you sleep track music compilations there's a lot of neat stuff you do and sometimes if i'm having like a rough day christina's like here's a meditation track for you to use Mike. <laughs> so and they help they really do so yeah thank you for yeah. sharing those you also have one that's like tardis noise all night i think right? oh my gosh yes but my favorite one i know we're getting off track but my favorite one for those that need help sleeping such as myself the boeing 747 sound right wow one of my favorites Paradox just, of space and time, though. Here's one for you. That will help you sleep, but I can't sleep on a real plane. <laughs> and for me, it's it's the babies that make it really difficult to sleep on an airplane. I'm just like, why? Yeah, last one, and then I promise we'll get back to the news. I'm on my way back from Brazil on the most recent trip I made. There's this little guy, this tyke in the seat next to me, and he was just small enough that he could just hang out, and the seat was almost room to him. But he was just big enough that when he decided in the middle of the night to flip over and kick his feet over into my lap and leave him right there, no. yeah, that uh, I had to give him some extra room. And <laughs> it was it was hilarious. I just let, you know, hey, that's cool, guy. Get get comfortable, my, my friend. Get comfortable. Trust I me. I know, that's but see, like, what it's cute. So innocent and cute. When I was younger, I used to, I had to go on planes often. And there was one time, I think it was like nine and I slept on some stranger's shoulder oh, yeah. and I woke up and I'm like, I'm so sorry. Just being <laughs> nine. And the poor guy was like, no, it's fine. I have kids. And I'm like, oh, thank God. I can't count how many strangers have fallen asleep and just gotten all cozy right on my shoulder. And what do I do? I just, I'm like, I don't want to wake them up. So I just don't move, you know? Yeah, you just, you just leave them there. You're like, I'm, I'm a good Samaritan. I will be their pillow. It's fine.
that's what happens on planes. Do we have any plane stories? I don't know if we do. I mean, they're all extraordinary. There's no such thing as a plane story on this program unless Chris Plane wrote it or sent it to us. So. <laughs> I see yeah. what you did there. We don't have any plane stories, but we do have one referring to the moon. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you, you, you don't take a plane to the moon, but nick a rocket. Yeah, or a diamond-shaped UAP, perhaps. Yeah. Hey, if, if, there were, if there was one that landed right in front of my house, I would go in it. Like, no hesitation. I'd be like, let's go. But do you mind if I just grab a few things before I jump in? And actually, what? Let's go to Walmart. Let me just casually come in store with me, and then I would take the ship and go. <laughs> I don't know how I would drive it, but that's fine. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Yeah, you'll figure this out on the fly. Well, get it on the fly. <laughs> that's right. That's absolutely right. So, uh, and you know, maybe later we'll dovetail around back to that idea of what would happen if one were aboard a flying saucer. We'll save that for a little later. Um, the news story you're referring to, and I, I presume this is also one that we covered recently at the debrief, right? That's right. Yeah. Which, for those that don't know, Micah is the co-founder of the debrief. All of his social media links, if they're not already below, they will be at the end of the show. And he has his own podcast called the Micah Hanks Program. And who doesn't want to hear his voice all day? So go over and follow the program. It's amazing. And you cover some really fascinating things. One of them, not only did you talk about the this article for the debrief about the moon, but you've done an entire show talking about the moon as well. I do want to get into that. But first, let's talk about this very interesting article. So yeah. what did China find? Well, first of all, the, the, the angle that I had here was that I'd been following some of the uh, investigations, you know, about the Chang'e 5 uh, moon rover. Right. Uh, and, you know, again, this is this is a mission that's been ongoing. They've been collecting uh, samples there on the, you know, from the regolith on the moon. And I was very intrigued by the fact that they had found essentially varieties of silicates uh, on uh, various parts of the moon. And that one of the samples that they had recovered of certain different kinds of minerals uh, and substances was believed to have come from Aristarchus crater. Uh, and that kind of made the old candle of recognition start flickering in the back of the brain because I've long been fascinated with, and a lot of you know, amateur and professional astronomers have been fascinated with Aristarchus crater. Uh, on this image, I wonder if I could spot it. I think it's actually, uh, I, th I think if memory serves, it's going to be up there in the upper left-hand corner. So probably, yeah, right in that that area, that may be it, in fact. Although the thing is, is that it's supposed to, and from that angle, I'm trying to see if that's correct. I'd have to double check. But I could provide you very good images of it up close. And, of course, a few of them are in the article. It being one of the most uh, constant and, and one of the brightest features on the lunar surface, that has caused it to be uh, something a lot of astronomers have been drawn to and have wanted to look at over the years. And so over the, over the centuries, in fact, actually, in some of these accounts, I haven't been able to unearth all of the original accounts, but going back to the 19th century, I've found references to uh, sightings that have been made uh, by uh, astronomers going back, I mean, probably at least to the 1600s, of a bright flash that has been been seen emanating from the center of Aristarchus Crater. And uh, there has actually been quite a lot of discussion in science publications over the centuries, you know, about that, especially since the maybe middle of the 19th century. Uh, and, you know, right on up through the early and middle 1900s into the space age, th there's an undisputed image of Aristarchus Crater. And I believe this, by the way, with... Uh, this is probably one that was collected by the uh, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, and so you've got some color correction that's going on right there. But where the arrow indicates, that is the center ridge 
uh, in the middle of the crater, which essentially, what's interesting is when a uh, meteor strikes the lunar surface, basically, uh, it, it can strike so forcefully that there is a near liquefaction in terms of the way that the lunar regolith, the, the lunar soil actually behaves. And they say that it can also almost take on liquid-like uh, properties. So um, I have a model that uh, chief imaging analyst for MUFON, Mark D'Antonio, made of the Aristarchus crater, which he gave to me as a gift. And uh, you can see in this model, based again, people are like, well, how can they get the proportions right and everything? Look, we've got a lot of, not just this one, a lot of great photography from Aristarchus Crater. Uh, again, this from uh, past moon missions, but of course from uh, more recent photography collected by the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. That little portion in the center, though, is essentially the main central ridge. It's a mountain-like formation right in the center, which was probably an artifact of the formation of the crater at the time of impact. But what's interesting about it is, as you can see in that photo, it's fairly bright. And my suspicion is that there's something about the mineral content of the crater itself that when light strikes that reflective face on that central feature in the middle of the crater, it can be so bright that it has an almost flashing or star-like appearance. But with some of the minerals that were collected from Aristarchus Crater by the Chang'e 5 mission, they seem to indicate that there are probably silicates and things that might even have a particular reflectivity, right? They may actually have a very high albedo, which is a measure of the reflectivity. There's, again, another image that you just switched to of, the, of that uh, central peak. So uh, there seems to be something very fascinating about that area. And probably back in the day, there were some really interesting speculations. What in the world would cause a star-like flash to occur in the Aristarchus crater? Is it a beacon on the moon? Are they trying to signal to us, the moon men? Well, today with the great photography that, that we have like this, we know that there's not a base there or some sort of a you know SETI device that's been set up trying to communicate with Earth. But there nonetheless is a uh, mineralogical, a geological mis uh, mystery that's going on right there. And that, you know, again, we have a lot more data than we used to, but I'm not so sure that it's completely solved. But wait, maybe there's more because this is just one instance of what's kind of known as transient lunar phenomena. And I've got a report here, a NASA report somewhere, which I can't find, but, um, and I'll dig it up. It's, it's documentation of sightings of transient lunar phenomena over time. Uh, what uh, TLP essentially involves is sightings of lights or other phenomena that are uh, observed on the surface of or around the moon that astronomers have noticed for, again, centuries, which tend to come and go, hence the use of the term transient. Um, there are a lot of different speculations about what kinds of things could cause transient lunar phenomena. And there's another interesting one, not just that bright flash from the center of Aristarchus. There's another kind of transient lunar phenomena that's associated with Aristarchus Crater, which involves these strange colored bands of light that appear over or adjacent to the crater and that actually appear to move. Figure that out. So this has been observed, I mean, a lot. And there are, again, some different theories about what might actually cause that. I think that some of speculated that it, again, could be the mineral content uh, of the that area, that region of the moon. But then there are also ideas that there could be hot gases, plumes of even volcanic gas that are escaping and things like this that could cause momentarily, uh, you know, I guess, color changes, hues, changes in hues that occur momentarily, uh, at least for a time, transient again, and then they dissipate and they vanish. But so a lot of people have described these things and have seen them over the years right. and a variety of different uh, so-called TLPs. But again, my longstanding favorite involves Crater Aristarchus, one of the most enigmatic places on the moon. 
So how does this article correlate with your previous research? Well, you know, I spent a lot of time. I mean, a lot of people would best know me, of course, Christina, as if not the editor-in-chief and co-founder of The Debrief or as podcaster Micah Hanks. You know, they know me primarily as being a guy who studies UAP and who has always tried to kind of approach it scientifically, although I've, I've been known to get into a bit of speculation from time to time, too. Um, <clears throat> and the thing is, is that really it's, it's, it's so much deeper for me than just UAP. I'm fascinated with the idea of there being unusual phenomena on the moon, um, examples of geological mysteries like the so-called Blair Cuspids, which are just a little kind of a series of strange, almost like if you take my fingertips and you, and you look at those, if you imagine those as like spires, right, or some sort of object projecting out of the surface of the moon, the Blair Cuspids are kind of oriented like that, and they've been photographed. But there have been all of these interesting angular measurements done of the length of the shadows cast by these objects, which have been suggestive of the idea that they are, if not unnatural features, and I would be very hesitant to call them unnatural features, they are at very least very unique features on the moon. I mean, this weird little series of like these towers that are all kind of in one area. And now, granted, we also have to take into consideration that based on the length of the shadows, one might interpret them as being taller than they actually are. Uh, there's a guy named Len Fleming, who back in the uh, 1990s began doing some very interesting analysis, and he felt that they were, you know, there was a very good case to be made that they were quite tall. Uh, there's a website called Clavius.org that Jay Windley and a few others have operated for years where they're primarily debunking NASA moon landing conspiracies, but they get a little into the nitty gritty on some of these questions about what shadow links on the moon, shadow directions can tell us, and how there can be sometimes optical illusions that arise from those sorts of things. So just add that into the mix with the transient lunar phenomena. These kinds of things fascinate me. And, you know, just one more I'll throw in. <coughs> um, Fran Ridge is a researcher who maintains the NICAP.org website, which is, of course, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena that was in operation from the 1950s up through, I think that they ended probably in the 1970s, but they were the largest civilian UFO research organization at the time um, for their day. And uh, the most well-known, but not the only uh, director of that organization, but probably the one that held that position the longest was Donald Kehoe. Uh, and so Fran Ridge has an excellent historical website that documents not only NICAP, but a wide range of historical information about UAP. Uh, less well-known, however, is that Fran Ridge also did a lunar observation project where he actually had a telescopic array set up in the back of a van that could be moved for a time. Uh, and Fran Ridge and others uh, undertook this Lunascan, as it was called, this Lunascan project. And prior to the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter being placed in orbit around the moon, uh, there was an instance where they actually, uh, Fran, captured footage of some sort of an object, I guess, back in the 1990s that appeared to be orbiting the moon. And I think that if the memory, uh, if memory serves, the object appears to actually curve around and then disappear behind the horizon on the moon as it passes in orbit around it. So uh, Ridge's question has always remained, what was that object that was, you know, filmed orbiting the moon at that time, which could never be found again? Here again, another transient phenomena that's appeared, was filmed. We didn't ever see it again as though it just mysteriously left. And there are a lot of these kind of things that have been recorded throughout history, uh, similar transits of objects that have been seen passing in front of the sun. Uh, there was, for a time, a very interesting phenomena that was observed by early astronomers who were watching the planet Venus. They thought that Venus had a new moon. And we were like, what's this moon around Venus that we have never seen before? And within a few weeks, it just vanished and was never seen again. 
so how does an how does a planet like Venus suddenly have an object in orbit around it that's noticeable and that several astronomers all note and see and they're like okay whatever that thing is it's there so and then weeks later it's just gone these kind of things fascinate me and you know you might call that some of it pre-ufology in terms of these earlier cases which a lot of them were logged by Charles Hoy Fort the original Fortean Others yeah. like Luna Scan were more recent, but again, there's a lot of stuff in our skies and in space that's worth looking at. Maybe not all of them are the so-called UAP that we're so enamored with these days. Well, hopefully with the Artemis missions that we will be getting really soon, the first launch is going to be late in August, where they're going to be sending mannequins to do a rotation around the moon, sending a bunch of stuff like like a hundred pounds of stuff but not people so i think that with this new artemis mission plural missions um hopefully we'll be able to get more answers because a lot of us we're like why did all of these um projects exploring the moon just stopped now we're getting this new mission that's going to be coming out and hopefully we'll get those answers. And now they really want to place people on the moon. They want to colonize the moon. And we are even aware, and we've covered this on, on Strange Paradigms, that plants are able to grow with lunar soil. That's unbelievably fascinating. Like oh, yeah. th That just goes to show that life can grow absolutely anywhere. Anywhere. As long as you just have a few little things to kind of fix it up. But the fact that plants can grow on lunar soil it goes to show that this Artemis mission might be, uh, it might, it might have good, good effects to everything. Hopefully we'll, we'll see. And it'll be in our lifetime where we'll be able to see the moon colonized. I think that'd be really cool. Well, it's going to be really cool. Would you go? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. And no. Yes. And no. Yes. Like and no. See, like, look, the space exploration is great, but if it's like a, a, a one destination trip, I would say no. I'd rather have my own spacecraft and travel wherever I want versus just going to the moon and back. Yeah. Yeah, I hear that. But I mean, if I had an opportunity to go to the moon and spend like two or three days, I would. absolutely. It, it would definitely not be a few days. <laughs> it would right. probably be months, if not years. Well, you know, I mean, yeah. If I could go, if there were ever an opportunity where space travel becomes uh, affordable enough and practical enough that, you know, civilian scientists can go to the moon, I would absolutely love to go and spend time. And, you know, the first place I would go, I'd be like, baby, take me to Aristarchus. And in fact, you know, past moon missions had considered that as a landing site. So I can make the argument that's going to be a good place to land anyway, right? Put her exactly. Down. And there's also about 200 Goldilocks zones as well, because we're aware that the moon is pretty brutal. The The weathers in the daytime and at night are extreme. But if you have that Goldilocks zone, these types of caverns or sometimes um, craters as well, you have that temperature about 65 degrees Fahrenheit, which is nice, very temperate. But if you're just on the surface of the moon in the daytime, it goes up to 100 and something degrees, several hundred degrees Fahrenheit. And then at night, below zero by a few hundred degrees. So it, it, they're, they're pretty extreme temperatures that I think a lot of people don't really realize when they state, oh, let's go to the moon. Well, a lot, it'd be pretty safe. You gotta, you gotta be knowledgeable on what the heck is going on there, first off. And yeah. then temperature it's, would be second. A, a, close, a close comparison would be anyone who spent time in the desert uh, you know, the extreme temperature differences, you know, in an environment like that that doesn't retain heat very well, right. which also receives a whole lot of sun exposure in the daytime. Now, imagine that also 
on a planet, uh, planetary satellite like ours, right, our lonely single natural satellite uh, that has less uh, atmospheric ability to shield against the sunlight that it strikes it on one side and then add to those dangers on the lunar surface, the regolith itself, because, you know, the moon dust, they say, can actually work its way into the crevices and into the little cracks in uh, astronauts' spacesuits and can literally deteriorate them and cause functional problems, if not actually potentially deadly ones. So, I mean, all these things have to be taken into consideration. The lunar environment is quite hostile to humans uh, just by its very nature, but nonetheless a place that's going to have to remain really high on the list for future exploration, in my view. Well, what else is hostile are our oceans. We can only go so deep before we just die, practically. <laughs> Implode internally. But there was one free diver, which means that you dive in without any equipment, such as scuba equipment, who went to the depth, who, who dived about 393 feet. That's extreme. So what I want to state and why this is so important is because with scuba equipment, for instance, right, the, the, the deepest that someone can go with scuba equipment is about 322 feet. And let me share my screen here to show what it looks like because I'm not I wasn't familiar with free diving. I didn't know that you need to have a string with you to to take you down. So that was new to me because, again, oceans and me, we don't really get along. But if we're looking at this, we found out that the man of Mr. Gerald, he's 26 years old from France. He dived three hundred and ninety three feet all the way down just with bifins. And he broke the record and not once, not twice. He broke the record seven times and twice in one week, which just goes to show how dedicated this person is with absolutely no breathing equipment. So he was able to do that dive down and back up in three and a half minutes. And you do need to keep in mind that after you reach about 100 feet, you need to acclimate about every two to three feet. Otherwise, you will get it's nitrogen poisoning, correct? I believe so. Yeah, there are a lot of issues. And plus, just the pressure on your body, the deeper that you go, uh, actually can impair your ability to breathe and do other things. I mean, it can actually be quite challenging. But doing that without a diving suit, <laughs> that would be the height of, of mortal fear to me. I, I am I am with you on that one. I find that absolutely just mortifying. There, but you could not pay me to do that and plus i can only hold my breath for like a good 30 seconds that, now, that's as good as it's going to get for me as i understand it i think that uh, you know some of these uh you know which i guess you could call that you know a, a variety of stunt diving because i mean nobody is naturally just going to go diving to that death under those extreme circumstances but the record breakers have succeeded by you know bringing a small um i don't know what they would call it but you know a small portable lung that you know carries a small amount of air that they can actually get a, a quick mm -hmm. gasp which otherwise you wouldn't be able to do that. But again, doing that without actual breathing equipment and diving apparatus, you know, a tank to help you breathe. It's a remarkable feat that I would imagine couldn't be done any other way. But I mean, it's remarkable that this guy could actually do it, go to that depth and, and overcome all of those challenges. Like you said, again, you know, the idea and, and some of them, the other issue that you have to keep in mind, you get down to that depth, depth but the same problem results potentially from going up too fast. Again, nitrogen poisoning. That's right. 
you can't, you, you can't just swim right back up. You've got to go up kind of slow and allow your body to adjust to the changes in that environment as you go back up. And so all that time you can see the, the surface, but boy, you got to hold that breath. You know, you got to just keep on keeping on for a little while and hope for the best. <laughs> and there's definitely that level of panic, right? When you have to take it slow, but you're aware that you're running out of oxygen for your body to literally even function, right? You're, you're going to usually speed up and then you'll get the consequences when you reach the surface. But what I've learned from this article in particular that I think is um, important is that some people are able to push their bodies to the extreme, showing that we have that mentality of mind over matter and that literally, literally anything is possible. The fact for this person to hold his breath for three and a half minutes, the average person, and even sometimes opera singers, the limit is usually about two and a half, three minutes tops, usually for these people that have to hold their breath for long periods of time. This person is able to do it in three and a half minutes. And in this case, when it comes to swimming, every second counts. So that's a really big deal. And I think that for him to constantly break the world record seven times in a row and twice in the last week, he's really pushing his body to the extreme. And while many of us might consider, oh, I don't want to do it. Oh, I'm too scared because it seems hard, which I'm one of those people. Don't worry. But I think that if we're able to place our mind to a certain goal, and as for this man, he definitely did. Once again, it just goes to show that our minds are so incredibly strong, but our bodies react to how our mind thinks. We're able to run those five miles where we think we can only run one or two miles. We're able to not eat for three days if we put our mentality to it, such as fasting, right? But I, we, we place these limitations on ourselves. And I think that us as humans, we're incredibly capable to literally do almost anything but we place ourselves in these boxes that like oh no i can't do that no that's too hard and and i think that we we lose our potential there certainly yeah i think it's very important for people to you know set goals and challenge themselves now maybe i'm not going to do something quite as challenging as this gentleman has done yeah i'll probably pass on that one as well there are those folks who you know they they live for the extremes and uh you know then again they're to you know, to each their own. I mean, one person's extreme might be somebody else's extreme comfort zone. Uh, you know, I do a lot of things like you know, hiking, um, you know, mountain climbing, things like that. Bigfoot uh, hunting. Also, say what? Bigfoot hunting. Yeah, right. Things that you know, some might deem to be utterly absurd. Others might say would be you know, again, in their own way, kind of extreme, and things that would scare them. Um, I'm not so sure that uh, everybody's. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, you know, fear uh, markers, I guess, are the same, right? But in any case, I think it's important wherever you are in your life and whatever you do and whatever you're passionate about to try and push yourself a little into the, you know, uncomfortable zones, yeah. so to speak because that's what does help you grow. Uh, but this is taking that to a whole new level. And so again, kudos to him. He did it so we don't have to. 
There you go. And I think that's for the better. But for, for myself, when it comes to something that's uncomfortable, and Micah, I've told this to you personally, it's being in front of the camera. It's it's speaking. I find that so difficult. It, every single show I do, it's definitely out of my comfort zone. I'd rather be uh, just on the bed doing research by myself sometimes instead of, instead of doing it on camera because now I'm going to be on the internet forever and someone's going to bring it back and be like, well, Christina, five years ago, you said this. And right. the, the fear is real there. <laughs> Well, it is. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm the same way. I mean, you know, the funny thing is I'm extremely comfortable on a stage giving a lecture. I was up in Cape Girardeau uh, just last weekend giving a lengthy, almost two hour talk on UAP. Oh and gosh. I was very thrilled that almost everybody stayed in the room the entire time. And, uh, you know, our good friend Ryan Sprague was in the audience and he said, you know, man, uh, that he said, I, I, I was it was a lengthy lecture and I was on the edge of my seat the whole time. That was so kind of him, you know, wonderful to see Ryan. But I mean, for a lengthy talk on stage, I'm, I'm fine doing that. But, you know, when I have to be on camera, I don't mind it. I mean, it's, it's just fine. But, you know, people are like, why don't you do more videos? Same kind of a thing. You know, my research, I don't do my best research when I'm on camera. This is like fun. But if I'm in my research mode, you know, and I'm digging through old books and I'm going through You're going to be wearing a hoodie and some glasses and your hair's not going to be washed. I mean, that's just the way to do it. And like, you know, eating some chips or some having yeah. some coffee on the side. Is Nick Red from McCollum? Oh, yeah, you know, I like to have some crisps. I'll eat some crisps while I'm there, you know. Maybe the barbecue flavor. I like those, yeah. They're all right. Those are good. I like I like the the Frito barbecue flavored ones. Have you had those? They're little swirly ones. No, I haven't, but we'll have to oh. try some. Yeah. Oh, they are they are delicious, but after like three handfuls, my stomach definitely regrets it. It says, you got to stop. That's just pure grease. And I said, I know, but it just, just tastes so good. Yep. <laughs> it's just catch. well i wonder what a what a you know speaking of divers who are diving down to the depths of the ocean what if you were a whale swimming along and you see that gentleman do you you think he ever looks at that little guy and says i wonder what he tastes like let's just have a bite i love the way that you just so sm you just have like these really smooth transitions they are so good well let's let's talk about it this article blew my mind and then i'll tell you why i got sad a little bit later but let me actually share my screen here while I do that. Micah, take it away. What happened? Well, so the gentleman in question, this is a real-life whale tale, a, a Jonah of modern times. <laughs> the individual in question, and I've got his name here, here in just a moment. I've got to sort through all these stories here. I know, so many notes. Yeah, I've got my notes there. Okay, no, no, that's not the one. I thought I had the right one. Here we go. It's okay, now Michael Packard. Thank you, yeah, and I just found it. So he was diving for lobster off Cape Cod in Massachusetts. And the way he described it, he said he felt like he was hit by a 100 ton lorry. Now he's a pretty experienced diver, not of the same variety as the last gentleman we read about. Uh, Mr. Packard is a commercial diver. And right. when he, when he said he felt like he got hit by a lorry, I mean, he's, something had actually consumed him and had him in its mouth. And he thought a shark had actually grabbed a hold of him He's inside, now imagine this, he's inside a pitch black cavernous kind of a area. Um, and he, of course, you know, in this area off the New England coast, there are a lot of sharks and stuff, but he realizes immediately that there are no teeth inside the mouth of whatever he is in. Right, which I think is a good thing. I would feel a little bit more relieved. Otherwise, I mean, just death right there. Yeah. It didn't happen. 
Well, it didn't happen. And I'm wondering how in the world he actually got out of this situation. But as he later recounted, he said, as he's in there, he goes, oh, my God, I'm in the mouth of a whale. Now, <laughs> just imagine this. So the first few things that are going through his mind is, you know, even if I'm not in particular immediate danger inside the mouth of this whale, the problem is he did have, of course, proper diving apparatus. He had his, you know, oxygen tank. But I mean, that is a finite amount of oxygen. And so he's saying to himself, uh, if I run out of air, then I am going to die in here. So he said that he basically begins thinking about his family and, you know, what may happen and everything. When suddenly the darkness turned to light as the humpback, as it turned out it was, opened its jaw and he was tossed back out onto the ocean surface. This humpback released him. Now, this is a really interesting story. And of course, full disclosure, because I'm sure folks at home listening may go, wait a minute, I've heard this before and it's a year old. Yeah, we know that. And, and yeah. And but it, 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 it recycled and I was like, oh, this is such a cool story. And then I read it and I was like, oh, no, it's from a year ago. Oh, I still like it. I'm going to bring it in the show. Go ahead and keep it because even though it's a year old, I hadn't heard it. And I wanted to talk about this because this is just remarkable. And I actually kind of have a theory about this, which I'll share in a moment. Oh. They say that it would have been physically impossible for a humpback whale to actually swallow him. It would, you know, like the, 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 a human, probably, especially with diving gear, wouldn't have been able to actually be swallowed and fit down this creature's trachea, I presume, if indeed the same uh, anatomy uh, holds. But they're mammals, right, like us. So anyway, it wouldn't fit down his throat. But these creatures, what they do is they'll lunge through water and they will feed on, uh, you know, some of the larger whales actually feed primarily on plankton, right? That's what they have the baleen for. Mm -hmm. uh, but they will swim into shoals of fish and they say it's not impossible uh, for a person to, from time to time, also find themselves uh, in, the, uh, in the line of fire, so to speak. Now, I'd wondered really kind of what might be going on right here. Um, Again, and actually, here's some some data right uh, here from the UK nonprofit Whale and Dolphin Con uh, Conservation. They say a humpback's throat is only 15 inches in diameter, so the person wouldn't have been able to fit down there at all. But the thing that I wondered about was if it was an accidental feeding where the whale realizes, oh, gosh, I've got something in my mouth that's far too large and it just spits him out. That makes sense. And that's how he seemed to have been able to escape. I'd also wondered uh, if the whale had been swimming along, got him and thought, oh, I've got somebody or something in my mouth. I need to help him and takes him back to the surface. Now, the reason that came to mind is because you see other cetaceans often doing things like that. Um, dolphins, especially dolphins are very well known for defending humans. If they find themselves in a dangerous situation, uh, they'll fight away sharks and things like that and save humans. So uh, although a dolphin is a very different creature from a, a humpback whale, Again, I wondered sometime uh, about the the possibilities that there might be similar behaviors, you know, intelligence being exhibited by these creatures. Cetaceans are quite smart. Uh, they, of course, have their famous whale song, and dolphins are even known to be even more proficient with what some actually call a language they use. So who knows, maybe the humpback actually knew what was going on and said, I'm just going to give this guy a quick ride to the top. So rather than thinking he was stuck, he might have been like, okay, if I wait long enough, I'm going to get a free ride here. <laughs> <laughs> and we also need to keep in mind that when they're feeding, their trachea should open a few inches larger, right? I mean, this is the same way that people's trachea expands as well, especially when you eat and you don't chew, it gets a little bit bigger. Yeah, it can get a little stuck, but it still kind of opens up a little bit in order for food to come down. With this story, what I found uh, interesting, because he, he did quite a few interviews after this, his story went viral. However, I was not a part of that. I, I literally knew nothing about the story. He went on Jimmy Kimmel, Kimball, 
I believe. And yep. he did an interview. Um, see, I, I don't know how to say his last name because I've actually never watched any of his stuff until today. So forgive me. But when when Michael was on Jimmy's show, Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy, he, yeah. thank you. Uh, he had mentioned that he was kicking and screaming, really hoping to get this whale's attention to go ahead and spit him out. And, of course, he's alive. He's fine. He only broke a leg, and that was it. And um, he's still telling that tale today. And, and, and look, if he was a grandfather, and I'm not sure if he is, that's probably the most sick story you could tell your grandchildren. Oh, I know. And it, and it sheds new light on the ideas of, you know, these stories that we know, of course. I mentioned Jonah and the whale. But one thing seems pretty clear now. Uh, you wouldn't have been spending time in the belly of the whale. You know, same goes for Pinocchio. Uh, right. He might be small enough to fit down the whale's throat, but if you're a human and you happen to find yourself in the mouth of a humpback whale, you're probably not going to go much further than that mouth unless it takes you to the surface. So uh, probably going to be a good idea to try and get out if you can, uh, but there's a very good likelihood that that whale isn't going to try and keep you in its mouth very long, and uh, Mr. Packard seems to be evidence of that. <laughs> Yes, definitely. Well, Micah, we only have a few minutes left. We Let's cover one more story. We got a few, but let's just cover one. Sure. Should I pick it or do you want to pick it? Oh, go ahead. Ladies first. Oh, thank you. I think we should talk about Alaska. Okay. And the cattle mutilations there. Yeah, right. So this is one of the more recent uh, instances of cattle mutilation that's been reported. Um, although it's a phenomenon that's, of course, been known for quite a while. Uh, I found this particular story, in fact, there are a lot of different outlets that are carrying this, but this particular uh, incident is one of the less extreme kind of cases. It was reported, I believe, by alaskapublic.org, mm -hmm. and I'll read a couple of the, the main points. You know, Alaska troopers uh, apparently uh, were alerted about, I think, about two or three of these incidents in recent days around Delta Junction. Um, there is currently an award, and so if there are any viewers who are in the Delta Junction area up there in Alaska, and you happen to have any information about this because they're currently treating this as a crime, um, there's a $2,500 reward for information about the death of these cows. And now, you uh, pointed something out that was very interesting uh, in the uh, show notes that you shared with me. I'll get to that in a moment, but again, they say that there were a couple of eight-year-old girls who found this most recent uh, carcass, according to Tangy Bates, I believe is the name, right, of the, uh, the indiv individual who said that the girls found the cow on Wednesday in the woods uh, that surround the field where she and her husband kept about 100 of their cows. And as mentioned a week prior, they said they'd found the carcasses of two other cows that had gone missing, and they weren't sure of their cause of death either. But Bates said that this third cow, which was a lactating female, had clearly been killed and also had been mutilated. And here are the things that they noted about this actual uh, uh, kill. They said that they had cut her ears off cut her udder off, her reproductive organs, they'd cut her eyes out, and also the back straps out. Now, this is interesting, and I'll come back to that in a moment also, but they say that Bates and her husband have been operating this farm for quite a while, about six years now, and they say that they'd never heard about cattle mutilations in the area during that time until this started happening. There is going to be a necropsy that's occurring uh, soon or is currently underway, and that they hope that that's going to bring some additional details about what might have happened. Uh, but as she said, I originally came from Idaho, and we've seen this before there, but she says where you have cults that have come through and do cattle mutilations and take reproductive organs and eyeballs. Now, on that point, I have never heard 
of there ever being any confirmed instances where a cult or cult groups are killing cows just to take reproductive organs and eyeballs, but that's been a allegation. Um, and the interesting thing about this to me is, and we have to kind of take into consideration here for a moment, the mythos of the cattle mutilation. A lot of modern skeptics will tell you, oh, you know, when a cow dies, the first thing that's going to happen is that, you know, predators are going to come in, scavengers mostly. And what do they go for? First, the soft tissues. So you're going to see the eyes, you know, the genitals, things like that are going to be the very first thing to go. As gross as it sounds, I was actually up there in uh, Missouri talking with some folks uh, recently who have knowledge of this. They say, again, those kinds of things, the anus also are going to be the very first thing that some scavengers are going to go for. And as Again, that's not exactly appetizing for us, but I mean, that's going to be an easy meal if there's a dead cow laying in a field for a vulture or some similar animal. So some would argue that there's very little case to be made for, uh, you know, there being something else happening. I would argue quite the contrary, because if we especially look at some of the New Mexico and Arizona incidents from the 1970s, um, the FBI didn't want to get involved in those cattle mutilation uh, investigations. And so as it turned out, uh, the State Bureau of Investigation did some limited investigations. Local law enforcement did a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, Gabe Valdez, who later actually went on to actually assist with some of the National Institute for Discovery Science investigations that Robert Bigelow did in the 1990s, because they'd had cattle mutilations there at Skimwalker Ranch, too, and he owned it at the time. Gabe Valdez and others, who being a former law enforcement officer, and he had actively been one at the time of these mutilations in the 70s, he said there were a lot of really weird things that we began to notice. And although the FBI wouldn't get involved and we were kind of left to our own resources, some of the things we learned were that, A, there were cattle that were found completely exsanguinated. They'd been drained of all their blood, but some actually had chemicals in their body and there were chemical analysis uh, that had been conducted that determined what these chemicals were. And we knew what these chemicals were, and these were not some sort of a strange substance. These were chemicals that, you know, you could purchase from any kind of, you know, a, a, you know, a reagent grade chemical manufacturer. Uh, so these are very well-known earthly chemicals. We also had instances where some of these cattle mutilations uh, involved, and this is really peculiar, um, splotches of, uh, of essentially kind of a, a, I guess it would be a substance that wouldn't be visible to the naked eye, like a color, like a paint, but some sort of a substance that would luminesce under black light. And that several of these cows had been painted they found. And when they ran them under a black light, you could see that these cows had allegedly been marked with some sort of a substance. Um, now, my friend Rick Nedfern uh, is, a, did I say Rick Nedfern? I literally did it. Nick Redfern. That's a longstanding joke for us, by the way. Um, Rick Nedfern and Nick Redfern. Anyway, so Nick Redfern, my friend, who's well known for his research into UFOs uh, and has that nefarious alter ego that I just mentioned. Uh, Nick has done a lot of excellent research into uh, cattle mutilations. And not only will he point out the fact that there are a lot of very earthly sounding technologies that were associated with some of those, you know, incidents in the 1970s. But if we go all the way back, there have been FOIA documents that have been obtained that seem to indicate that various different uh, government agencies had been very concerned about cattle going back to the 1940s. And one of the concerns seemed to have been that, especially during the Cold War, that there might be attempts at trying to affect human food supply in the United States by our enemies. And one way they might try to do that would be to release pathogens into the environment that would cause things like hoof and mouth disease and things that would affect cattle and thereby reduce 
access to food popula or, f- or food resources that humans, you know, here in, in the United States that people rely on. And so what Nick supposes is that not only had there been concerns all the way back to the 1940s about the exploitation of, uh, you know, that food source and people who might try to affect that by harming cattle. But furthermore, there are also the insinuations by researcher Chris O'Brien that seem to suggest that concerns over nuclear uh, radiation and exposure to it following atomic tests also during the Cold War might also be a factor in understanding why cows are occasionally killed. Uh, And it seems pretty evident to me that in some cases, yeah, there are natural reasons for cattle mutilations, but in others, the surgical precision that the um, portions of the cows, um, uh, uh, bodies that are removed, the surgical precision that is described in terms of those removals, um, the obvious use of earthly technologies that are not terribly sophisticated, but that could covertly uh, aid in detecting cattle. Maybe, for instance, let's presume a scenario where you got a, a quiet helicopter. And there are, again, if you've ever seen a military helicopter flying at night, I've been amazed at, you know, again, all you'll see is a single red light on the front of the craft. And sometimes I don't even hear the rotors at a distance because of the way that they are able to actually reduce their their signature via the noise that they produce. And I've seen a, what looked like a helicopter fly silently over the house, but that was clearly a helicopter uh, on a few occasions being on a nearby flight corridor. So let's imagine that there's a fairly quiet military hel- uh, helicopter flying along, doing a night vision, uh, night mission, uh, primarily operating in night vision, or they may have a black light perhaps on the base of the craft. They want to go out there. They want to pick up some of these cattle and they're not going to flash, you know, headlights down and they can spot these cattle based on this, you know, simple method that they've used where there's a kind of a fluorescing paint that's placed on their backs and whatnot. And then they extract the portions of the cattle that they need. And then instead of dropping them back off, they literally drop the cow in the middle of the field. And that's consistent with some of the, dis- the, the discoveries of these bodies. Um, why that's done and, and the idea that it could be done using something far less extraordinary than exotic alien technologies as Nick and as I would contend too, uh, is maybe more unsettling than the idea that there are tests being conducted by extraterrestrials. And again, who knows what's going on behind it or if there aren't more than one reason why, uh, you know, cattle mutilations occur, um, maybe more than one group. But I found it interesting in this article that the family says, you know, back in Idaho, cults come through and they do it. I'm not sure that there's any evidence that suggests that any more evidence of cults than there is evidence of ET. But again, you know, this kind of come back, comes back to what we said about the UFO photo earlier. Yeah, sure. You could try to make a roundabout strange argument that it's a kite in that photograph, if you completely ignore what the witnesses say, if you ignore what other elements in that photograph seem to suggest, if you ignore what other photographic analysis seems to suggest, and if you ignore other possible, maybe in this instance, better conclusions than the kite scenario. Sure, it's easy to say that all these cattle mutilations are just cows dying and scavengers coming in and taking the soft organs. But again, vultures, and insects don't use fluorescent or paint that fluoresces under black light and put that on the backs of cattle. They don't put reagent grade chemicals in the bodies or in the bloodstream of these cattle. They don't, in fact, for that matter, drain the blood out of these animals. And if we want to get to the bottom of understanding all of the cattle mutilations, we have to look at all of the facts and not stick with pet theories involving, dare I say it, sacred cows. 
And imagine if ranchers knew what was happening, if they really were being abducted by extraterrestrials, how much that would scare them because they could do nothing about it. But if you blame it on a cult, those are people. You can catch those people. You can put those people in prison. And it's more tangible than stating, oh, actually, aliens are doing this and there's literally nothing you can do. Well, ranchers are going to end up finding another job. They're going to be like, I, I, I can't be a part of that. I can't go ahead and risk my my cattle for something that I can't control. So I think that from this family's standpoint stating, I've never heard this, but I think it could have been a cult, that, that's kind of more of like a safety mechanism, kind of like a comfort blanket, but also something that's more tangible that people can state, okay, there's a reason we can find the culprit for that. Micah, yeah. we've covered a bunch of articles so we're at the end of our show i want to say thank you so much for being my guest co-host where can people find you online and to listen to your podcast as well well i mean it's very easy to find me online the you know, first place to look is uh, at micah hanks on twitter and then of course you can go over here and find me on micahanks.com as well which is where my podcasts are available but also if you happen to look over here at the debrief.org as in the debrief, like you see on this screen. Yeah, the debrief.org is where I am regularly contributing as an author, but I'm also the current editor in chief. So, I mean, it's a daily, uh, you know, getting together with my editorial team, going over our plan, uh, publishing all the fine contributions that Tim McMillan, NJ Benias, Avi Loeb, Chris Plain, all these fine folks are doing. You know, Chrissy Newton, of course, is producing excellent podcasts. And we got a team that's always all hands on deck. And I'll tell you what, uh, uh, alumni of the debrief team right here present miss christina gomez you know we miss you but we're so proud of all the work that you do and continue to do and one of these days i'm going to find some way even if it's just for like one night i'm going to rope you back in to do some project with me because you know once you are a member of the debrief family because it feels increasingly as time goes on more and more like family than it does just a, uh, a business endeavor you know, you don't just uh, send your family off into the wilderness and forget about them. So, you know, we miss you. And we, of course, applaud everything that you're doing, support your efforts wholeheartedly and are very excited every time we see your shows come out and stuff. And you're always still considered a part of that family, too. Thank you. And Dan, thank you. It says cheers, Christina and brother Micah. Micah, yeah. hang tight backstage. We're going to end the show, but just hang there. All right. Well, thank you for everyone watching this show live. Thank you to all of my moderators, all the Super Chats, Super Stickers, Patreon subscribers, and YouTube members. This could not be possible without you. First question before we go, which was your favorite article that we covered today? I think mine was the, probably the funniest one, and it was about the string cheese, string cheese advertisement stunt. Wow. I mean, I, seriously, I fell for it. I was like, what? And then turns out, it wasn't really real, so dang. But let's say if it was real, what would you trade for that string cheese? I don't know. Probably, I'd probably trade a, a bowl of ramen because that's what I love. And who doesn't love ramen? If you don't, then I think you're crazy, but it's so good. So I want to say thank you to absolutely everyone. Come by on Tuesday for Shifting the Paradigm. I will have retired Navajo Ranger John Dover. You don't want to miss it. It's all about skinwalkers very fascinating interview well i want you to be safe and remember keep your eyes on the skies
Hey, wonderful listener, this is Christina. If you love these podcasts, please make sure to rate each episode, leave a review, and subscribe on the app or platform you listen in on and share with others. It really is a great way to support my work and helps so much. Also, if you want to watch the video of the show, the link to my YouTube channel is below. 